You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. by true confession, how many of you have been in a conversation with somebody else, and in that conversation, they've asked you this question? Are you listening to me? Show of hands. Show of hands. Really? Some of you have that good at listening skills. You've never been asked that question? I certainly have been asked that question. My wife has asked me that question. My friends have asked me that question. I even have one friend I can think about who has teased me repeatedly. Every time we see them, he can sometimes tell when he has lost me. He's Eric, I know. You're looking, but you're not listening. There's a glaze that comes across your eyes. I've exceeded my word count and I've lost your attention. You're being a polite listener, but you're not really listening to me. We understand this kind of social dynamic. When you're engaging in verbal communication, There is this exchanging of words, this information being relayed, and the person asks the question, are you listening? Now, sometimes they'll ask it in a different way. Sometimes they'll say, are you hearing me? But that's not really what they mean to ask. They really mean to ask the question, are you listening? Because the truth is, in conversation, we can hear each other like you are hearing the words come out of my mouth. I believe today you are audibly hearing me speak to you, but that does not guarantee that you are actually listening to what I'm saying. And by that, I mean taking it in, processing it, really kind of running it through a rubric, considering what's said and interacting with it. In fact, sometimes that can be because we are dismissive of the individual speaking. I won't listen to you. Or sometimes it can be because we're being quite defensive and we're sort of protecting ourselves and so we're sort of getting ready for the counter strike and we're not listening anymore. We're hearing, we're hearing, there's an audible gap about to come. There it is, I strike back. This is a problem not simply in the interaction with individuals privately, or even collectively with such an assembly like we have here today, this is even a problem when people come to the Bible. While it's being read by you, and therefore categorically you could say by visual understanding or maybe by audible representation if you're using an app of some sorts where it's being read to you, you could say you're hearing it, but the question is are you really listening to it? Are you really listening to it? Well, God has been speaking, but not everybody throughout history has been listening. In fact, do me a favor just to see this with your own eyes. Go to Isaiah 42 in your Bibles. As you're turning to Isaiah 42, some of you might be new to the Bible. You're like, where is Isaiah at? I know that as a person maybe seated around me, but I don't actually know that in the Bible. Go basically to the middle of your Bible. You'll typically find the book of Psalms. Start going to the right of Psalms. You'll come to what's known sometimes by association as a major prophet, the name Isaiah. It's a real man, really lived. 
If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to listen in, but also know that we have those available for free at the Welcome Center. I'd be glad for you to have that. If you do not have a Bible, but you are a Christian, I would encourage you to wean yourself off of a common temptation today, which is to simply use your Bible by using your phone. Instead, I'd encourage you to actually have a copy in the future where you can interact and see text and context and underline and make up things and own it as something significant to really digest well. Isaiah 42, in the middle of this large collection of prophecy, let me read to you what's being said here in verses one to four. Isaiah says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, if you're new to the Bible, I basically just introduce you to a text that you're like, what is happening? Who is talking about? Is Isaiah talking about some servant of his? What's he talking about? Isaiah is a prophet speaking on behalf of God who is speaking to the people of Israel about the Lord's servant, which would be the Messiah to come. And this is not the only prophecy. In fact, there are countless, hundreds and hundreds of prophecy that God has been speaking to his people, but his people have been hearing, but not listening. To see why this is so important, go to Matthew chapter 1. Coming now into the New Testament, just going to the right of Isaiah, into the beginning of the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, right after the book of Malachi, we come to the book of Matthew, a book that we're going to be in this morning in Matthew 27, but I want you to see the text in its context because Matthew, the writer, has an audience in mind, and he wants to make sure the audience is listening. If you would, look with me at Matthew chapter 1. After it speaks about the birth of Jesus Christ and speaking about Mary, he says in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then again, if you look, jump down to chapter 2, verse 5, it says, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet. Nine, over nine times... This Jewish man named Matthew, over nine different times in his record of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, says those words in some form or fashion, as it is written in the prophets. He is writing to a largely predominantly Jewish audience who would have known what's referred to as the Torah, the prophets, the writings, what we refer to today as the Old Testament. And Matthew's saying, guys, it has been said but I don't think you've been listening. And so throughout this time, he has been wanting to make sure that his readers listen. Because if they miss it, they don't just miss information, they miss eternal life. Well, that brings us to our point this morning, now in Matthew 27. If you would just turn 27 chapters later in the book of Matthew we return back to the story of the crucifixion. I say return back because we were in this text last week 
as we looked in Matthew 27 about this text here, specifically the significance of what's happening with the crucifixion of Jesus, as we saw this in verse 27, all the way down to basically through the end of verse 50 and the beginning of verse 51. But now we return back to this text, the text that is chronicling the crucifixion of Jesus as we work our way through the gospel of Matthew. And it's significant as we understand this because we want to make sure we listen well. Now, in fairness to you, as a listener this morning, I could maybe make the mistake of simply giving you the historical connections on things that you might miss not otherwise understanding. Because to be honest, everyone in this room is 2,000 years removed from this event we're about to read. So you're like, okay, I need some historical decoder rings, some glass to help me see what I otherwise might miss and not appreciate. Or others of you are like, listen, a straight up truth, I'm not Jewish, I have no clue what's going on in the text, a lot of Jewish writings, a lot of Jewish phrases, why is this so significant? And so you might understand the cultural context, not just the historical commentary, but the cultural context. But if I gave you all that information for the next 40 minutes, you would miss the point of the passage. Why does Matthew give this? What does he want us to understand? This morning... I hope to serve a number of people, if not most people here this morning well, by identifying five types of people here that need to not miss what's going on in Matthew 27 with the crucifixion. In the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 11, verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Five types of people who need to listen this morning. First of all, the insecure. The insecure. Now, why would I say this? Let's go back to the text. Let's get a running start, going back to verse 45, though our purposes will start in verse 51 and following. So in the middle of the scene of the crucifixion, it says in verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, Jesus having already been crucified on the cross, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit meaning he died. Verse 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who saw and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. 
Verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, verse 62, that is after the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, why do I say in the middle of this historical unpacking of this text, five types of people? Well, the first one I said is insecure. I want to make sure anybody this morning here that perhaps is insecure in the relationship with God would understand what's being said here. Let's go down now back to verse 51, because this passing comment is profound as we will later learn in the Bible. Verse 51 says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Now, I don't understand, expect rather for you guys to understand this, but at this time in in history, Jewish life, religious life, revolved around the temple in Jerusalem. Whether or not you physically lived in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem or in other part of Israel at large, you often came back to Israel for participation in the sacrificial system as a visual display of your need for atonement, your need for forgiveness. And you can go all the way back into the Torah As you see this in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, God, when he designed first the tabernacle and then eventually the temple, God designed in such a way that it has sort of like sections to it. And the ultimate section was known as the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies contained the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark were the Ten Commandments. And the significance of the Holy of Holies was that no one entered. No one except one and only once a year the great high priest. The high priest served the people on behalf of the people to go before God once a year on the day of atonement. You can read this yourself in Leviticus. On the day of atonement where he would represent the people on behalf of their sins and make atonement for the entire people of Israel. And other than that one time, at no other time could he go in. And even when he did go in, it had a whole world of preparation. You think about going into a public event today, if it was a significant event, you're going to a wedding of some sort. You can think of some massive ball you've been invited to. If you're in high school, you think about, remember, going to the prom. There is a sense of getting ready to prepare yourself for this big event. You want to get it right. Friends, the reason why you want to get this one right is to get this one wrong is to come at the consequence of your own life. So for century after century after century, this is how the people had a relationship with God was through one person who represented them to God. And this curtain that separated the people from the priests and the Holy of Holies, the curtain was 60 feet 
60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and it's set up to four inches thick. So picture a 60 foot tall curtain, 30 feet wide, four inches thick. What does the text say happens in verse 51 after Jesus died? The curtain of the temple was torn in two, and here's the key, from top to bottom. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. This is not manufactured defect. Uh, This is not, uh, we need to ask uh, Elijah what happened the last time you fixed the curtain. This is a divine disruption of a replacement of what has previously only been physical that now becomes spiritual. This is a profound reality. When Jesus died, the veil was torn. God moved out of that place, never again to dwell in a temple made with human hands. That's exactly what Paul says in Acts 17, verse 24. God was through with that temple and its religious system. The temple in Jerusalem were left desolate later on in AD 70. Now, why do I say that those who are here today listening need to recognize it for those who are insecure? Because, friends, this is where it gets glorious. If I could sing, I would. My wife's like, please do not. Hebrews chapter 10. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. I think we have it for you on the screen. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at what it says there. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through that curtain. He opened for us through that curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, <laughs> we could just like pull the curve and just talk about this text all day long. But let me just give you a sense of context of what's happening. This text is written by another author who himself is Jewish, writing to another audience who themselves are Jewish, who later on after Christ's ministry is happening and the apostles have been spreading, these new Jewish Christians are tempted to start to go back and slide back to Judaism. Like, you know what? I could actually gain a little bit more public popularity with my friends or family if I could kind of go back to the temple. And, and the author of Hebrews is like, wait a second, wait a second, where are you going? Hold. You're about to go to an outdated inadequate, insufficient, extinct system that has been replaced by Jesus. And you can now draw near to God, not through a high priest, whatever high priest it was at the time, but through Jesus Christ. He made a sacrifice, but it wasn't an animal he offered. It was his own flesh. But the key here in this text is talking about this, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, this is significant because I guarantee you there are those here this morning who think, understandably, Eric, you don't know what I have done. If you knew what I have done, you would understand why I don't think God would accept me. 
This is a generally good message for generally good people, but I am not one of those people. I maybe used to think I was, or I've never thought of myself that way. I have no confidence that God could ever love me because who I am, where I'm from, what I've done. Friends, in verse 51 of Luke 27, when that curtain is torn, God through his son is saying, everybody is welcome through faith. That's exactly what it's saying in the text, in full assurance of faith. It's not full assurance of your good works. It's full assurance of faith, that there is confidence. This one passing, notice if you will, we're not even through half of the first verse after what's taken place when Jesus dies. And it is, it is literally life-changing. Friend, my encouragement to you is to go to Christ He will be your only qualified and greatly qualified high priest to represent you to God the Father through faith in him. He will accept you, having cleansed you. The second group I want to make sure needs to listen this morning is not just the insecure, it's also the skeptical. It's also the skeptical. Look at verse 51, the second part of it, and then in verse 52 and verse 53, It says in verse 51, and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, this is radical. There's so much going on in the text, I'm afraid any part of it you might miss it, how radical it is. Because not only is something happening locally, with the temple and its aesthetics, the temple being torn down with the, with the curtain being torn, but actually, it's also happening geographically what's happening in the land. The land is shaking. Rocks are being split. And you might say, well, that's ironic timing. That can be explained away. That's just chance. That's just fate. Well, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Skeptical. That might perhaps be an explanation. But now you're stuck with the next problem. The next problem says, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, let me just make sure you understand what's happening here in the text. The text is basically saying, hey, there was an earthquake when he died, and later on, after his resurrection, which is a sneak peek of what's to come, by the way, it's a bit of a spoiler alert after his resurrection, but the the readers of Matthew would have known this, historically had already taken place in the timeline that they're reading this. But after this, then basically what happens is you get a flash mob. Now, I don't know, how many of you have ever seen a video of a flash mob? Okay, I for a while was like so stuck on flash mobs. Seriously, like you go on YouTube, if you've never seen it, I highly recommend a flash mob because it's like just crazy entertaining moment, this like public space, train station, some place in public, some little shopping plaza. These two people are having, next thing you know, it's like breaks out into like this Broadway musical. And it's like all these people who you guaranteed you think are like spectators actually become participants and they're like dancing like crazy. I'm thinking that would be so cool. Seriously, you just blow people's mind. Now, it would actually require you to have some skill and that could be highly debatable as whether or not I would qualify myself to participate in a flash mob. Nevertheless, what's happening here as what's being 
testified to is that you basically have a flash mob of not just impressive dancers, but impressive dead people. Like, wait, Susan, what are you doing here? Wait, Mordecai, I thought, I thought you were dead. What you basically have happen here in the text is you have saints, not like Lazarus, it's not the same term being used here. It's basically a warm-up lap of what would come later on for all other saints. Presumably, as some historian and commentators have said, would have ascended with him later and would be returning again in the future. But the idea that they fall asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. Now, I know right now, somebody in this room is like, hey, there's no way that that happened. Okay, I hear you. You know who used to think that same way? The soldiers who earlier were responsible for hitting, striking, spitting, mocking, kicking Jesus. And look at what it says here in the text. Verse 54. When the centurion, that's the head of all the guards, and those who are with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Of God. Friends, this is shocking and exciting. They're shocked and we're excited because they're shocked because their skepticism has just simply been mocked. We're excited because honestly, we're like, told you so. I mean, I told you so. In fact, for the matter, he told you so. Why are you so surprised? But you have to admit, it would be quite surprising if the flash mob of dead people appeared around you. You have to imagine the sense of guilt that these soldiers would have. As it says even in the phrase there, they were filled with awe. This term indicating the idea of being overwhelmed, the sense of being speechless. What do they say, though? Truly, this was the Son of God. How amazing it is, and even testified to many of those present here this morning, who are once skeptics of religion in general, rejectors of Christianity in particular, perhaps have thought in the past, you would never give your life to some 2,000-year-old dead Jewish rabbi, and have all of the reasons by which you would find justification to dismiss him, and yet here you sit today, however many months or years later, a follower of Christ. Because you have seen, as God has shown you, what God showed them in different ways, that he indeed is the Savior. And have recognized with not just respect, but with reverence, who God is in his Son. The third group to listen to this morning is to making sure they're paying attention. It's not just the insecure here, not just the skeptical, it's also the disenfranchised. And this is by way of encouragement. I want to make sure you don't miss this. It comes up in verse 55 and verse 56, and again in verse 61. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Later on, when speaking about the tomb, in verse 61, it says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The reason I talk about the group of being disenfranchised is because you have to recognize at this time, this isn't some type of 
day like we find today, trying to find the idea of equal rights and opportunities, first century Judaism was not favorable to women. And that's one of the things that marks Christianity as being so distinct and so unique. In fact, if you're really interested to track, quote unquote, women's rights, track it back to the history and the relationship it's had in its teaching to the Bible. Or otherwise, the Bible has recovered what God has first taught back in Genesis 1, that men and women were made in the image of God as image bearers, both having dignity and equal opportunity to have access and relationship to him. And the significance of this should not be lost on modern day ears that would not have been lost on those first century ears, which is Matthew does not try to impress and clean up and present the best people. He presents all of the people God gave to testify. The disenfranchised would have been women at this time who would have been minimized at best, if not dismissed at worst. By definition, disenfranchised means deprived of the rights or privileges of full participation in society or in any community or organization, especially the opportunity to influence policy or make one's voice heard. And yet, here is God, under the writing of Matthew, putting women at the front and center of the testimony of the ministry of Jesus. Throughout his ministry, Jesus had many followers beyond the 12 disciples. This, of course, included women. In fact, the Gospels tell us that many women traveled with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. They loved him. They ministered to him. They witnessed his miracles, heard his teachings, wept at his crucifixion. Some were mothers and sisters of those who were also his disciples. Others were women who he had healed or who he had delivered from various forms of sickness or demonic influence and and the forced professions, he had cleared them of all of that. And who does Matthew list here? He doesn't give us an exhaustive list. Other disciples give other names. But the three that Matthew lists are Mary Magdalene, the woman whom Jesus had cast out seven demons, Mary, the mother of James and the younger of Joseph, and then Solomon. He doesn't mention her by name, but, but that's who this is, the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder. You have to understand In Jewish law at this time, women were not valid witnesses in the court of law in Jewish law. They would have been in Roman law, but not in Jewish law. Matthew says it does not matter because God brings them front and center to show the dignity, the capacity, and the relationship he has with them, even by having them in the story as they were there historically. The significance of feeling as if you're disenfranchised and God does not see you. Oh, God sees you. God counts you. The fourth group we need to not miss is the embarrassed. This is the secret disciple. He gets more attention by comparison. Verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. He rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Why is this so significant? Well, because of who Joseph of Arimathea was, it later says in Luke, in another record of the same account, he's basically a member of the Sanhedrin. Presumably not voting for Jesus to be crucified, he actually is a follower of Jesus. 
But up until this point, no one knew this. There's no record of this. There's no interaction of him testifying against these other witnesses that were lying to somehow defraud Jesus. Instead, this is, if you will, coming out party to identify himself as a follower of Christ. And you have to imagine, this was costly, not only by finances, but also by reputation. You see, as a rich man, as it describes him as such, he would have had the opportunity to have this tomb. It's like today, if you're gonna get buried, it's not uncommon for people, long before they died, to already buy their plot of land. Perhaps this is true for some people in this room. Perhaps you have bought, or your parents have bought, or your grandparents have bought a, a plot of land that you're gonna be buried in. You already know it. There's already perhaps some older relatives that are buried there next to that, and that's gonna be your spot. And it's very costly to have that lot of land for Indefinite amount of time is costly. Well, where he would have had this lot of land would have been costly because of what it would have cost him financially. But it's not just what it cost him financially, it's what it cost him by reputation, socially. Joseph is basically about to go public. He's about to say, I believe in him. I identify with him. Now, why is this so significant? Because who is not yet introduced into the story again? Who have we not read about again? The disciples. Other than the apostle John, who in the gospel of John we begin to see is perhaps in the scene in the courtyard with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Other than that, all the rest are seemingly absent. They're all AWOL. But now here is seemingly the unlikeliest of people raising his hand and it's coming out. This would be like you being at work, known as being a Christian, but you get into a conversation at the table in the workroom, and you are silent. Or perhaps your friends say, hey, let's go out for dinner, it's Saturday night. A bunch of you guys go out for dinner, it's Saturday night. You know it's getting late. You know where you're going, what you're doing. You probably should call it a night. You really want to be at church in the morning and be awake, not just present. And the unlikeliest of people speaks up. Your coworker, who you never knew, identified as a Christian and said, actually, I'm going to sit this one out. Actually, I'm going to call it a night. You are? Why? Where are you going? Not feeling well? Oh, I feel fine. What's happening? I want to get home. Why? I want to get to bed because I want to get a good night's rest for church in the morning. You go to church? Yeah. Oh, good for you. Oh, no, it's more than that. What do you mean? I love Christ. It's that conversation that you would not expect that person to participate in. And all of a sudden, they go public with their belief that Jesus is the Son of God. I imagine there's some people sitting here this morning who could be nicknamed Joseph. Your Christianity, other than your attendance in this room this morning, is unknown to anybody outside this room. And I don't say that in any way to guilt you or shame you. I mean to tell you, based on the company this morning of Joseph, you're in good company. But I do mean to challenge you with this challenge. This week, it's time to go public. It's time to let people know I'm a follower of Christ. Call me a fool. 
Call me a bigot, call me whatever kind of hateful term you're associated with me. I love Christ. And as I learn about him, I'm so thankful what he has done for me and I wanna live for him and glorify him in my life. Will it cost you? Yes. If you're waiting to identify as a follower of Christ to when it won't cost you, you'll be waiting your entire life. You'll never go public. But here's a question you've got to ask. Who do I want to accept me more? God or men? God who rules over all the nations, has appointed all people in places, who has given his son, who has paid for my sin, or men who come and go? Who probably in a matter of years won't even remember my name. But God who has written my name in the book of life. Friends, I'm encouraging you this morning, no longer be embarrassed, but be like Joseph and come out. Fifth and final group to listen this morning is not just the insecure, not just the skeptical, not just the disenfranchised, not just the embarrassed. In humility, it's also the rebellious. Look at verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, referring to Jesus, after three days I will rise. All of a sudden they're quite clear in what he's teaching. Verse 64, Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Here is what I think is so staggering. The same information, the same events that took place that turned the heads of everybody else would not turn the hearts of the religious leaders at that time. It's not as if they didn't know about the earthquakes or feel them. It's not as if the idea of what was going to be taking place was not actually being seen or that Joseph, one of their own, was going public. At any point, the opportunity to say, we were wrong, he was right, they would not do that. They are the rebellious. What do they do? They secure permission to station a guard at Jesus' tomb and steal it. Why do they do this? Because they remember the words of Jesus that he will rise again from the dead. It has been said, the eyes are useless when the mind is blind. And they're blind. They will not see what is so obviously undeniable. I cannot help but to think of what Paul would later write in Corinthians when he says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. question for some of you this morning to ask yourself is will I continue to reject 
the truth of Jesus and have my heart be as hard as it was when I first came here? Or will I see and recognize a Savior that God has chosen for the forgiveness of sins? I can assure you there are those loved ones and family members who pray that you would see what God has shown them that you would have the eyes to see and the faith to trust in a crucified Savior. That the rebellious would not be the category that you would be associated with, but instead the surrendered like Joseph, the publicly proclaiming. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.